This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and today I'm talking with Brandon Bush. Brandon wears a lot of hats as drummer, multi-instrumentalist, producer, songwriter, and musical director. Many of his original projects have him partnering with his brother Christian, including Sugarland, of course, but in recent years they have also collaborated on numerous musical theater productions and a new recording project called Dark Water. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. So Brandon and I had a good long talk. We usually try to edit these episodes down to an hour or a little more, but this conversation found itself in a lot of interesting territory and he had interesting things to say about all of it, so we just left it all in. He's really thoughtful and insightful about all aspects of music from the minutia of drumming to big overarching philosophical approaches and I really enjoyed talking with him. Hope you'll dig it too. Here we go with Brandon Bush. vacation for me yeah yeah for like from what though you know from yeah from work um i have a pretty pretty full schedule i'm pretty much i can tell yeah i'm pretty much a six day a week you know at best i get a day off every every week yeah Uh, that's a good problem to have man (laughs) hard to complain and you like you you're you and your family have like a cabin or some shit right yes this is i'm new life is my and i I wore my hat today my Tallulah gorge (laughs) state park we uh we bought we pandemic panicked and bought a cabin on 10 acres. Wow, how cool. And it is up near the Tallulah Gorge, which is, you know, the great Niagara Falls of the East. Right. Um, I've seen, like, Robbie Handley has told me about that place, uh-huh. and um, we, we got to get up there. 
it, what is it, two hours from here? It's about an hour and a half. Okay. Yeah, it's not far. Well, even more reason. Yeah. It's beautiful up there. And so we have been, um, yeah, we've been, I've been spending more and more time up there to the point now where unless I have to be in the studio here, uh, I'll just escape up there and I can do all my work. Since so much of what I do is remote, I can just do it all there. So. Right, right. So you said, you know, like you're, you're kind of a six day a week dude. Um, you just finished... Uh, Darlin' Corey mm-hmm. and uh, just finished this dark water thing, yes. right? So what are you spending six days a week on now? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you know what I'm having? I'm having the, the situation that I think a lot of us freelancers are having right now, which is I was booked starting tomorrow, no, starting Monday um, through the end of February, solid mm-hmm. on two different musicals. Wow. So I was going to New York to work on a 29-hour reading, which is sort of a... a theater world for like let's learn a musical in one week and yeah. present it which uh, as the music director of it is a daunting task yeah right? we had we had cast it with 14 actors i had 30 songs i had a, a wow. you know musicians uh so i had i had a lot of work to do in yeah. 29 hours present this thing um followed directly by a musical that was starting down in miami that then had a month long of rehearsals and then the show itself and all of that in the last 72 hours has all gone away. Really? Yes. Because of COVID. Whoa, just in the last three days. And it's that it's that moment of which I we all went through early 2020. Yeah, it's all happening like, again. I'm I'm busy and here is and you you know, freelance, it's 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 happening or it's not. Right. And so those days it's happening, you're kind of counting on that money. Like mm-hmm. this is getting me through a certain amount of time. I've said no to other things, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm suddenly clear. So I do still have some work. Yeah. Um, we are, one of the projects has pivoted, the one down in Miami. So instead of uh, prepping for one, I'm prepping for another. Got it. So so my next six days will be writing piano vocal scores for a musical that is happening down in Miami. And is that a new musical that you're... That's a new musical. Right. So I'm the music director of it. I didn't uh-huh. write it. Okay. Um, but my job is to... My brother's the composer on that one. So my job is to take his demos, which we've been working on off and on and have evolved and changed, and turn them into sheet music mm-hmm. for the actors who want to learn the music ahead of time, which is a rare treat I've learned in theater. <laughs> they're not, not going to wait till day one of rehearsal. They want to come in prepared. Wow, so, amazing. Yeah, which Thanks, is Thanks, actors. Yes, I know. I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm embracing that yeah. by uh, spending the next few days in the trenches, you know, putting it all together. Cool. And so was Darlin' Corey the same process where, like, Christian basically wrote and composed all that stuff and you... Uh, got it up on its feet yes that's correct so he he was the composer and uh and we did this once before with a musical with him called troubadour Mm -hmm. and so i'm slowly losing my ability to claim that i don't know what i'm doing in this industry (laughs) although i still don't know what i'm doing i just (laughs) should know what i'm doing at this point um so I've, i've gone around the bases a few times now in musical theater so i i have gotten accustomed to this part of the job Mm -hmm. which is interpreting a composer's vision and you both have to orchestrate, so you have to write it out for whatever musicians you're going to have. But really, a big part of it is preparing it for the actors. Yeah. So they need sheet music to work from. There's harmonies to deal with. There's timing and pacing with dialogue. Um, and then just the general 
prepping for the performance of it. Right, it has right. To be put into some form. And how do you approach uh, doing that kind of prep work for the band and for the drummer specifically? Yeah. Um, well, you and so we know each other because you were you were in place understudying technically sort right. of a COVID position that's been created in the world of of uh, orchestra music or, or musical musicians. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, to work on Darling Corey and, and actually working before that, which we did. Right. And in both cases, uh, working didn't, well, it just it did have a drum book, didn't it? Yeah. Sort Or uh, of sorts. Yeah. And Darling Corey had no drum book at all. Right. And I actually leaned on, on Q, on Quentin Robinson, to write the drum book from the demos. Mm-hmm. So we were working from some demos. I would basically say this is and isn't what we want so you know ignore that part this part's better move that kick drum place around do something different here and then he was interpreting that into the drum book which then we were frantically trying to put into score and get to you (laughs) in case something happens (laughs) right right and i I feel like that's more and more common um in the theater world where you know a, a the the drummer on a show isn't just brought in to i mean obviously if it's an existing show with an existing book then you know the drum but like for a new musical which it seems there are more and more of every day the drummer is brought in to like write the drum book (laughs) yeah and that was i was really learning from q on that too because he's has more experience and was able to sort of say you know this there's a boundary here at some point i'm asking him to do creative work yeah i'm asking him to to you know, innovate and do something that could persist later, mm-hmm. right? This could go along if this is a successful musical and moves on. And in in some way, I need to respect that that is a creative job he has done. Yeah. As opposed to just wrote creating, like putting it down, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like let me transcribe right. this eight bar pattern that you have come up with. Mm-hmm. And I think from my background, I really my background is in rock and country and music production, and I'm so much more used to looking at a drummer and being like, you know, falling down the stairs, drum fill goes here. <laughs> right. Not this is exactly the sixteenth note pattern I want. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I'm already used to this world of of helping people interpret a musical feeling and then use their strengths, their knowledge to recreate it. Yeah, and like. In Darlin' Corey, with that situation with Q, in first of all, how many musicals have you done? How many? How many? How many have you MD'd? Five now. Okay. Yeah. So was Darlin' Corey like in terms of constructing the drum book, like the the most freedom that a drummer ever had to create that? Yes, and and partially because. Uh, some of my other musicals had not, had, didn't have drums at all. Okay. So there was that. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> um, but also in this particular musical, I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to, I wanted to hold on to the sounds that we were creating in the demo process. Mm-hmm. So instead of coming in and saying, I want a traditional kit and I want it played like this, I'm coming in saying, I want this stomp and this clap like these p- physical sounds that we've created to be in this this universe of this music. Mm-hmm. And what that meant is that we were 100% electric. Right. So everything was on a pad and triggered with the exception of a shaker mic, I think. It yeah, was. yeah. So, um, so that kind of created a situation where uh, I was actually bringing in more of the sounds mm-hmm. and then Q was interpreting, okay, because he's a geek and that stuff and loves it. Yeah. How can I 
set up a world with 17 pads and different configurations and, you know, and, right. and pull that off. Yeah, yeah. Which he did beautifully. So. Yeah, I mean, I don't know many other drummers that, that could have done it in that way because Q is just so deep into that stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, like he, he told me about the show and like what it was and like the flavor of the music and... Um, and then he told me it was all electronic and I was like, wait, what? Yeah. Cause it just, the music is, is, uh, just super folksy, organic, you know, like you said, stomps and claps and tambourines and, and, you know, there, there are quite a few drum set sounds in it, but they're, um, they're, uh, just really, uh, natural acoustic, you know, it's not big rock stuff. It's Mm -hmm. just kind of like vintage sounding drum stuff. And it's all electric and that like i i gotta be honest that uh sort of disappointed me and freaked me out yeah because <laughs> i was like i want to play some you know cool old vintage sounding set and yeah. and actually stomp on something yeah. and <laughs> yeah because you take away from the drummer uh, all dynamic like there still is dynamic in pads mm-hmm. right there you can still play soft and loud but it's an entirely it's a different form and much more limiting right i've now said like instead of the infinite levels of of kick drum volume you can give me and tone and style right. that you've spent your entire life working on now i'm going to limit it to really basically 128 midi note variations in velocity so right. give me one of the 128 <laughs> you know like i'm trying to be be sensitive to that from the other side like what if somebody came to me and basically said you know stop playing your instrument with all of the depth and knowledge that you have yeah <laughs> it's terrifying yeah but i mean it ended up being it, it just seemed like um especially in the hands of someone like you you know a, an all electronic setup becomes so modular mm-hmm. and it, like so it's limiting in one sense mm-hmm. but uh just gives you um not necessarily more options but like faster options yeah when you want to make a change it's yeah. it's you know the press of a button and yeah. and you know for me it would take forty minutes but for Q it's yeah. just bang yeah um, yeah and 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 gave us consistency right? right so we knew exactly what it was going to sound like every night which is a big bonus in theater mm-hmm. and uh, to me we were able to do some sound design stuff that I thought was really important so we we actually looked at certain frequencies on both my sub bass because I had a synth sub bass that right. I used and I used that at the end of Act One. And at the end of Act Two, and there were kick frequencies that we emphasized at the end of Act One and the end of Act Two. So we actually did a thing in the room, and I sat with Clay Benning down there, who's the amazing sound designer at the Alliance, before we started rehearsals. We sat in the room and identified what are these frequencies that make it this room resonate and feel cinematic and kind of get you into that out of other world experience. Right? Yeah. And I saved those specifically for those dramatic moments. Wow. And instead of having to sort of create it acoustically, then mic it, then go to the front of house and then hope that that's emphasized, it was like handing them the cable. Like, yeah. here is exactly how I want this to sound at its most dramatic moment. Right. That's insane. That's, <laughs> and so that, I mean, that's a, that's an argument in favor of just this all electronic. Yeah approach and as much as it breaks my heart to right. <laughs> to do that like you you can't do that with you know yeah. a, a, a traditional acoustic setup and yeah. to be able to like tailor um 
the effect you want in that moment of the show yeah. to the space you're in yeah. digitally. Yeah, just uh, dial it in. Now, now, what I realized right away, we got notes starting from the first preview, like, oh, it's the, the bass is too heavy in this seat. Mm-hmm. The bass is too heavy in that seat. And I was like, well, yeah, that's the only thing I can't control now is I want everybody to be sitting exactly in the right seat. Right. Because the room has its own resonance. Yeah. And therefore, what I've achieved in one one sense, I'm losing in another. But, you know, you, you pick your battles. Yeah, yeah. You know, the other big uh, – and, and I really didn't anticipate this, but the other big advantage that we got to is that we were completely on ears. And we were able to one – of the, one of the big challenges I have – in musical theater is that there's all these layers of restrictions of time that you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And because everything has to be budgeted like months in advance, you have to really anticipate to the minute at times how much time you need to deal with all of the changes that come up in a musical. Mm-hmm. So we're going to change a song. We're going to add a verse. We're going to add bars here. All that happens and it all happens – many times happens during previews. Yeah, And I have to say, okay – I need a half hour with this band to work up this new section, or I need to go over this thing. I need to make sure this is right. And I had to have asked for that half hour months in advance yeah. so that it was budgeted. Right. Okay? What I realized is that we actually gained the, the time when, when they would open the house and before the show started. That half hour of time, I could sit down with the band and we could silently, on in, on in, on in ears, yeah go over and tweak on some things and double check some stuff. And we gained all this extra sort of access to music yeah. um, that was an unanticipated win. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so like going forward for, uh, you know, future musicals, is, is this something you're inclined to do more to go all yeah. electronic? I don't know that <laughs> the musical that, um, that I'm doing down in Miami, that's just been postponed um, has two songs with, with drum programming mm-hmm. and I'm really struggling with how to approach that in a way that doesn't, that feels organic mm-hmm. and can evolve. So you're, you're saying like most of the songs just have a, a drum part with a drummer, but these the, two, no, the rest are, the rest are just no, there's no percussion. It's, oh, it's, got it. it's okay. piano and strings. And, uh, it, it's, it's basically sort of a piano with orchestra right. kind of score. Uh huh. But there are two that really need the percussion that's part of it. That's kind of drum loopy and, you know. But one of the problems you get is if you put anything to track, then you lose the spontaneity. And the spontaneity is so crucial in theater, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You really need both the ebb and flow of tempo, yeah. but also the potential to just that one night when that dialogue line in the middle takes a little bit longer or there's applause or there's a laugh line or, right. you know, like you... Or that actor is hung over and yeah, just dragging. Dragging, yeah. <laughs> All of that not only is going to happen, but it needs to happen mm-hmm. in theater. So the idea of, of, oh, I'll just put that on track or I'll hit the space bar, all of that is, and uh, you know, against what we're trying to do. Right. So, um, so are you trying to figure out a way to, um, like, is, is your dilemma... Um, how to how to do that uh, digitally or to hire a human being to come play two songs? Yeah, it's it's both, and right <laughs> because I I think the the best way to do it is to have an individual there, mm-hmm. and whether it is on pads that's performed um, or it's a real kit that we've made to sound like that, um, 
that's the perfect solution. Yeah. But then, you know, you're fighting the budget there. So now I've asked for another musician for what is in essence a very small part of the larger score. Right. And uh, so then I'm like, well, do I have an extra hand? Can I pull this? Can I, because I was going to play the piano. Can I do a stomp pedal and like, you know, an yeah. elbow up here? You know, like, right. can I pull this off? And then it's like, well, no, am I looking at, you know, uh, an Ableton type solution? Am I looking at something that's sort of predictable, but flexible right. and built in where I can, you know, just just give that person something else to do on the other song. Like, yes. if, you know, if there's like honest to God drum set for a couple songs, yes. then for the rest of the numbers, there could be like a cymbal roll here well, and a triangle there. <laughs> like, get your money's worth. Exactly. <laughs> when you realize that, too, in, in this world of orchestration, right, you you have to figure out what this music needs in order to deliver what, what has in, been written. Mm-hmm. But then you also you have physically so many hands and those hands have a limit to what they can do at any given time and also what they can possibly, you know, I don't know how many like oboe slash drummers I'm going to find, right? <laughs> right. You know, so, so you have to kind of, okay, what can, is there something that say the cello was doing on this song that now I can turn into some percussion part right. and achieve what we're trying to do there. Yeah. And in essence, use that person in a way that is, you know, economical right. for the production. So. Right. And and not uh, exploitative of yes. that person. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and also not taking away like or unnecessary, yeah. right? Because to me, to me, unnecessary production is almost as bad as as uh, wrong. You yeah. Know? Like, like yeah. Uh, just having a shaker... To, because I have a human there, yeah, it's not the right answer most of the time. I can't either. tell you how many times, like, somebody has not in a musical necessarily, but just in any song. You know, there's a part of the song or the beginning or something, especially at church gigs, Ooh. like for these worship songs. Yeah, um, you know, there's there's a lot of times when I'm like, this doesn't need drums. Yeah. Yet, yeah, like we're yeah. in the first eight bars. Yeah. Like, can the piano and guitar just set this yeah. up and? Yeah. Uh, but you know, they almost always want just some kind of babysitting. Um, and uh, yeah, just those, those, it's, it's interesting how often I, as a drummer say, I don't need to play. I shouldn't be hitting this. This This is wrong. (laughs) We don't got much time. A tick tock and slipping like a sun. And everyone's afraid if they go down, we all go down and no one's coming back. What's your crime? Tell the truth, I'm just like you. I don't know which way to run. We all go down and no one's coming back. Our time is brief. have this humongous skill set like you're a multi-instrumentalist uh vocalist composer writer producer um at at what point and and how did drums enter that skill set yeah uh, they came very in a very clear way they came in sixth grade um, oh that early yeah okay so i i started playing violin and when i was four years old and started playing piano at five and my brother and I both learned the Suzuki method, which is an ear training musical method mm-hmm. where you start very young. And we're both taking lessons. And it was 
among like we credit our, our mother with this. We um, when I was in fifth grade, I took violin and piano lessons, but I also did gymnastics. I did ballet. I was in a reading class. I did baseball or, or t-ball. Yeah, yeah. Swimming, um, soccer. I did. Jesus. There was a drama club thing. I mean, so we did two activities a day every day. You're just day. a Renaissance man from the start, well, man. And like, what's funny is that to me, you know, that was what we did. Mm-hmm. That was what I, I I'm normal, or I don't know what you. But it, I I had no perspective right at the time. I'm a parent now, and I I started. I was a step. I'm a step parent, and I started at my uh, stepson was seven, and I think back to this monumental thing that my parents were doing for us at the time. Yeah. And how many times, I mean, I was just exhausted every day of step parenting. It's, yeah. it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. And we would barely make it to Saturday soccer, you know, <laughs> and like to think what, what my parents did for us in order to expose us to anything and everything. Yeah. All that to say it's music that stuck and we loved it and we excelled at it and we were told we were good at it, which I think is one of the most crucial things you can do for a child who's mm-hmm. trying anything. Yeah. And so we began to identify with it. Like, oh, I like this. I like how I like how people like me when I do this. Yeah. Right. Um and and was listening to music as one does when when you're coming up and finding your things. And so I discovered Motley Crue and hair metal and everything that was awesome. Right. To me in sixth grade, and I hated playing the violin. I, 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 these very clear memories of our little string quartet breakout class we had in middle school of just having that violin under my chin and just so frustrated with my, you know, looking back, my inability to play in tune. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> but that's not what it was to me at the time. What it was was just sort of this chaotic, awful grinding experience that just wasn't right for me. You know, I hated it at my core. And so I came home and started this year-long campaign of of begging my parents, let me give up on the violin and take up something that has a future, (laughs) like drumming for heavy metal bands. (laughs) And uh, and it was a year-long campaign. I mean, it it was hard fought by me. Really? And it was a Christmas uh, payoff. I came downstairs to uh, a CB700 International kit, all black, with the animal Muppet (laughs) strung up behind on the on the drum stool. Another monumental feat by my uh, by Santa. Yeah, yeah, Um, by Santa. (laughs) That uh, you know, one of those moments that just changed everything in my life. Like getting that permission to do that. Yeah, uh, my pent up passion for this i mean i was so ready yeah um and had this we had this amazing musical teacher in our life uh at the time named doug klein and he took me on as a drum student and very patiently taught me shout at the devil yeah one of my first songs i learned how to play you know monster um, so anyway yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's exactly so um so that's 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 how it all started and really i drums became my primary interest mm-hmm. for most of my middle school, you know, into high school years. I still played piano, still loved it. Yeah. My brother and I made a lot of records when we were young and did the job of I was the drummer and the keyboardist. He was the bass player and the guitarist. And Which is basically so, what's still going on with the Dark Water thing, for, for, right? For the most part, right. yeah. So Benji, who's our, our third person in Dark Water, so Benji is the bass player. I'm the drummer. Right. 
and then Benji's the guitarist, I'm the keyboardist, and Christian does all the uh, singing and plays guitar. So. How cool. Yeah. Man. It's amazing that you guys have been making music together just your entire lives. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, uh, just taken so many different forms. Like yeah, it, it went, you know, from a garage band thing yeah. to, to Sugarland yeah. to now this, this whole, you know, musical theater endeavor yeah. that you both seem to be just neck deep in. Like that's, I mean, that's the direction now kind of for both of you, right? Yeah. It's, it's definitely become, you know, the, uh, what's on the calendar you know <laughs> we we still have plenty of other things that we're pursuing um, but this one seems to dominate um but it, it it's really the same thing over and over again i mean i think i think what we do now is the same thing we were doing above the garage when we were 11 and 13 mm-hmm. and 14 you know we we are trying to figure out how to make something from nothing yeah that when you listen back to it back then on our four track yeah you know, you feel something, right? You know, ultimately, mm-hmm. and uh, with that targets moved around. Who are we trying to get to feel what? Yeah. But ultimately, it's the same thing we do over and over again, which is start the day with nothing, and then end the day like patting each other on the back with the playback speakers. You right. know, like right. we did that. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. Or like, do some days end with? Not that. Oh, most most days. <laughs> I, I think the, especially the dynamic between he and I, like I hate everything that we do. <laughs> and he loves everything that we do. Yeah. So so one of the great passions you know, or one of the great things that I learned from my brother over and over again is that it's okay to unabashedly love what you do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I, I mean, I've always struggled with that and will always struggle with that. Um but uh, but to I think you know what I bring to it is is that immediate criticism that I think is also a healthy part of the creative sure. process. And but, and when you say love what you do, you're you're not talking in the sense of like enjoying your career. You're talking in the sense of love the product. Yes, objectively saying this is good. Yeah, I sound good. Yeah, I did good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it's it's you know I'm not I don't want to paint him out as a egomaniac in that sense. It's just that he there's something that made you all the decisions that went into place to create what you did. Mm -hmm. And particularly as a songwriter, that's way more at play, right? Why, why this word, why this string of words, why this melody? Um, But it also applies to everything else that we do. Why, why all these decisions? Mm -hmm. And you make some definitive version, whether it's a recording or in a score, um, it's on the stage, whatever it is, you have to sit back and say, okay, why is that great? Right. Not did I fail or do I need better, uh-huh. right? But why is it great? What in that, what do I need to honor about those decisions I made to do this, yeah. right? Um, and I think there's a real healthy world in understanding that like you can, there's something that you're making that's worth it, yeah. right? <laughs> and um, ultimately you want people to be affected by it. And so to understand what works is to understand how to affect people with it. Right, right. And, you know, why else make music? Have, have you, so, like, you, you struggle with that from a creative standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, do you struggle with that from an instrumental standpoint, like whether you're behind the drums or at yeah. the keyboard, like just for your own playing? Yeah, I do. And it, it's so Dark Water, the new band that we're doing that, uh, you know, I'm the full-time drummer. I'm the recording drummer in right, Dark Water, right? right? 
And the first record really came about out of an experiment. I We have a studio and we have a publishing company and a record company. And one of the things that I was pushing um, my brother and Benji to do was let's use our time wisely. Let's Let's come up with music that we can license that has a target out there that isn't us. Let's stop trying to be us for a minute and do something else. And I came up with this idea of like, let's make a Celtic metal band. <laughs> and, and this is because I had just finished working on a, uh, a musical, uh, Shakespeare in Love, which they had done at the Alliance, where I had to teach the cast how to play Bodron and some other, and we had some Celtic instrument in it. And we had, I had just spent like two months in this, this Celtic music. Okay? Right, right. And uh, I keep an intern working with us all the time from the UGA music business program, which I love. And my intern at the time, I tasked with like, where is this world? Is there a world of like gypsy metal, you know, folk metal? What is that world? Mm-hmm. And uh, and the intern came back and was like, okay, yeah, here's here's the blogs, here's the resources, here's where they stream well, you know. And I said, great, look, we're gonna make Celtic metal music. We're gonna come up with a fake band name. <laughs> And I'm going to see if I can turn that into streams, right? Hmm. Like, let's just see if we can play the game mm-hmm. from an objective, like, targeted, you know, process. Costs us nothing but time. Right. And we've got the studio and we've got the expertise, right? Um, that was a colossal failure, okay? <laughs> but a valiant effort, right? Yeah. Got, like, by the time we got finished, I was like, man, uh, first of all, like, we don't sound good. Uh, you know, like... <laughs> Turns out metal's hard. It is. There's all like, you know, which is good. It's good to discover those things. Yeah. Um, and so we kind of shifted and we're like, well, what is what was some other ideas we had? Well, And one of the ideas was like, what if we took the Grateful Dead album, American Beauty, and said, what were the six songs that didn't make the record? Mm. Like, what if we used that instrumentation, mm-hmm. that kind of general focus of lyric, uh, that sound style, you know, like... The, the recording quality mm-hmm. and try to reproduce it, but kind of write, what were the other six songs? And so we started on that project and that turned into Dark Water. Wow. That we were like, man, we kind of like this stuff. Like Christian was really enjoying writing from being purely lyricist, you know, melody writer mm-hmm. who took the guitar out of his hands and said, you know, you don't get to do your standard bridge, your right. standard. He really loves having the music follow what the melody wants to do. And mm-hmm. what that does, particularly in country writing, is it means the music is really predictable a lot of times, yeah. right? Because it's afterthought. It's just there as a bed to support how that turn happens in the lyric, right. which is beautiful, but is not derivative of you know anything that's sort of smart pop music, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so Benji and I really were like, okay, let's write stuff that we know will work melodically, but forces us into some strange corners and like pushes some boundaries and which is to me very much what the Grateful Dead did a lot of times. I I didn't have a lot of history uh, appreciating the dead, but have kind of come back to it later in life and Mm -hmm. realized, okay, yeah, you know what they were doing? They had lyricists. Yeah. You know, and they were just kind of writing what's fun to play musically. Yeah. Building these kind of tension release cliffs and valleys and constructing it into something that that sometimes tells a story, sometimes honestly doesn't, right. <laughs> and kind of meanders. Right. But when it's successful, I think it's very satisfying in a yeah, different way. Right? Totally. And I I relate to that about the dead because I they were never really on my radar yeah. in any significant way. 
before I moved to the South uh-huh. and I moved to Atlanta and um, it's it's just bigger here yeah. than anywhere I've ever lived. Um, and, you know, I ended up like doing some tribute shows and like it just it came across my radar yeah. in, in various ways. And the more I got into it, you know, the I, I was like, OK, I like you. You're like, I get it. Mm-hmm. I get why this is cool. Yeah. There's some really clever songwriting going yeah. on here. There's yeah. some really clever arrangement and yeah. effective just structuring of yeah. things. Um, and, uh, you know, th- that, of course, is tempered with, you know, I, I'm still of the opinion that most of their recorded catalog is like unlistenable. Yeah. It's just meandering, <laughs> unlistenable bullshit. Um, but, uh, but you know, the, the what's at the core, the yeah. songs. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that band, those minds, like, yeah. I was like, I get it. Yeah. Um, so it's such an interesting sort of concept to approach a project with that headspace. Like, yeah. what are, you know, what are the songs that didn't make it onto this record? Yeah. It reminded me of, um, I listened to an interview with uh, Rick Rubin, and mm-hmm. he was talking about when he worked with Metallica. Yeah. And I don't remember what record or records uh-huh. it was, but he, like, at the beginning of the project, he said... Imagine you're you're 17 years old and this entire record is songs that you are writing in order to win a battle of the bands. Yes. Like put yourself in that headspace. Like yes. every song is just going to be a fucking killer. Yeah. And uh and it 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 worked. So like rather than, you know, we we were talking earlier about this um, you know, the get back the Beatles thing yeah. and how, you know, they're spending a lot of time just kind of just meandering around and like, you know, they're it doesn't seem like they've put themselves in that kind of headspace about like, what are we going to create? Not that you have to have a complete picture of it, but like set your intent from the beginning. Um, So like having set that intent, um, do you feel uh, that you came out with those six songs? Not at all. Um, (laughs) Not at all. But I think that's part of the creative process to me. It's like, I I want boundaries to my canvas. Like I want edges so that I can, paint off of them right right? but i want to know where our what we're looking at Mm -hmm. and um and and i mean this is a really long answer to your question of when i've felt those limitations but the the point being we made that whole first record sort of haphazardly and and with um an evolving realization that we were going to call this a band and kind of do this and one of the things that when we were sat down to like, okay, let's make some more dark water music. And I was like, I've, my hand was up right away. And I was like, I either don't need to be the drummer, which I'm totally fine with, or we need better drum sounds and I need to practice. You know, like, <laughs> like my big takeaway from that first record for me is just that it's just, I need the drums to be satisfying in everything I listen to. Mm-hmm. And I'm my worst critic, you know, like there are times when I feel it ebb and flow in ways that's not good mm-hmm. and uh, is lacking a precision. And we, and we weren't capturing drums really like we would for a record. You mm-hmm. know, we were kind of doing a lot of work in post to clean it up and make it sound right. In so, terms of tone or timing or like everything? Everything. Okay. But, but, but for me particularly uh, – well, both really. <laughs> you know, if the tone's wrong, I, I'm it's unlistenable to me. Mm-hmm. Like I'm that guy. Like if you give me the best live bootleg performance, and it's poor quality, mm-hmm. I never want to hear it. <laughs> right? Yeah. You could you could hand me like here's the police right. in 1982, killing it. Mm-hmm. Right? 
but it's just like somebody got a cassette in the back of the room. I was like, no, 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 no. I, it has to sound good to me. Right. It's a barrier of entry. Right. Um, and then, of course, it has to be performed well, too. So. Yeah, yeah. So, so all that to say, it's time to do the next record. And I do want to play drums on it. And I'm comfortable not playing drums on it. That's not going to hurt my ego, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I also, like, uh, I want to figure out a way to do it. And so, so I took a look at the Talking Heads. This is my roundabout way answer, answering this. But I there's an era of the Talking Heads that I think is particular, and this was resonating with me during the pandemic. I was just doing a lot of listening. Um, that is so amazingly groovy and solid. Mm-hmm. And yet the drumming is very simple. Mm-hmm. And it started to like a little light bulb went off. Yeah. Like maybe we can chase a sound where my job is really just to hit the one, like, you know, real simple, yeah. which I can do all day, uh-huh. right? What, what, this is all the finesse uh, that, you know, is hit or miss with me, and you've got a drum take and you're going to keep it. Uh, yeah. So we started looking at uh, ways to kind of take the real nerdy on us here, but take the, the burden of the 16th note. Where that sixteenth note lands, where the the swing is yeah. inside the sixteenth note, and put that either on a percussion track that I overdub, or into Benji's hands on guitar, or Christian's hands on acoustic, which he's fantastic, like his, his right hand, or in my hands on the clavinet, mm-hmm. like things where we have expertise, right, in playing with subdivisions, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, and take little old drummer me who's been <laughs> playing keyboards for the last twenty years and not spending enough time behind the kit yeah. and stop making it my job to define those sixteenth notes, mm-hmm. and uh, and it really I feel like worked really well. We were able to kind of recreate this feel, this bubble, this movement without me having to necessarily have a fantastic hand on the hi-hat yeah, or execute fills that, right. that really give you, or, or kick, you know, syncopated kicks, right? Yeah. Those places where um, it all falls apart when it's not right. Yeah. I, man, it, it's, it's such a, a great approach and, and such a great idea. Um, and, and I, I, I don't mean to burst your bubble, but like, I'm realizing it's an old idea Yes. to just take that burden out of the drummer's hands, even if the drummer is fucking Steve Gadd. Yeah. Um, but I, it just reminds me of, of how many songs I've dug into, like, you know, if you're playing, <laughs> if you're playing a cover band gig or mm-hmm. what, like you got to learn, you know, all yeah. these pop songs from yeah. the last 50 years. And for so many of them. When I actually dug into the drum part, yeah. it was like, yeah, like there's not a lot going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, it it works on the record because of production and because of, you know, the the they bring in percussionists yep. and they, like all yep. this shit is happening. Um, so it's, you know, I think as, as drummers, um, we always want to make all that shit happen. Yeah. Right. Because in a live in a live context, yeah. um, you don't have. Yeah, the production. You don't yeah. have the percussionist. Yeah. Like it's kind of all on you. Yep. Um, and I think we overcompensate in, yeah. and and we try to like assume that responsibility for sure. too much of what we do. Absolutely. Um, well, you're you're the as the drummer, you're the master of that rhythm. Right? right. It's your job to dictate where everything falls. Right. Right. And that's one of the great pleasures of of music in a group is that 
it can be the burden and and the joy of another human on that stage to mm-hmm. actually tell us where that swing is. Mm-hmm. It's like Earth, Wind, and Fire is a great example, yeah. right? It's always in those horn parts that are so like, you know, you're just like, oh, that's the feel. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And all the drummer's got to do is, catch, catch. Yeah. so good. Yeah. And, and even when, even in a live setting, when you don't have all the shit that's on the record, like, yeah. So many times I've I've just sort of like turned my 16th note drummer brain off yeah. and just like laid down the quarter note and it's like, oh, yeah. that that feels good. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's especially when you have limitations in the instrument, right? It's like this joy when you're like, oh, I'm not only am I in my lane, but I'm comfortably in my lane, right? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. um and then one of the things that happens when when you're a multi-instrumentalist and when the band is made up of multi-instrumentalists is that we end up sort of, um, you know, I call it kind of Stevie wondering where it's like your, your drum fill or your cadence or your, the place you feel that release happens again and again and again on the recording because mm-hmm. you're the same person who played it over and over again. Right. So it doesn't matter what instrument you're with, right? but w- when you get to that release right before the bridge or that thing or whatever, you naturally do this certain kind of pattern Yeah, and you did it on keys and drums and the lead synth and the, you know, just because this, you're the same human right. and you hear those things. And it's one of the things that I think make those Stevie Wonder records so great is that, you know, it is physically the same human doing uh-huh. a different job, playing the same feel all the time, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I wish I could, uh, well, I won't say I wish it's my goal to turn that drummer brain off mm. more often because yeah. especially like since I've been doing recording in here, yeah. um, you know, I'll get a song, I'll get a project from somebody and, and especially when I'm kind of given room to run, like do yeah. your thing on this, yeah. then, you know, my, my fucking jazz brain turns yeah, yeah, on totally. and I'm like, man, I am going to do something on this song that, <laughs> right. you know, and it's, it just gets too cute by half and yep, completely yep. overcooked. Yeah. But it's, you know, if, if somebody, um, if somebody gives me their song and says, I want you Zach mm-hmm. to do your thing mm-hmm. on this song. Yeah. Bring it, Zach it, to this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just feels like a wasted opportunity yes. to, to just simplify and strip down. And it's yes. like, no, I want to put my stamp on this. Yeah, totally. Even if my stamp, um, ruins the song (laughs) (laughs) well and there's so few examples but they're beautiful of times when like you know a steve gad setup or groove or something you know becomes the song right like also there was a lyricist also there was you know but let's get down to it Mm -hmm. like when that song comes on the radio and you feel that groove set up it's Mm -hmm. like i'm done i'm here i have arrived i am now in a hit song I yeah. don't care what else happens. Yep. You know, and so that those moments exist. And so it's right to want to make them. Yep. <laughs> right. Totally. But I'm I'm learning like in just in my playing and the way I approach physically playing the drums and also like the arc of a song, um, more and more I'm I'm looking for just like little spots. Yeah. Just like single yeah. little moments yeah. that I can put my little stamp on it. It doesn't yeah. have to be, you know the the groove that i construct for an entire chorus yeah. it yeah. could be just one note and you brought up steve gadd like i'm reminded of the the tune uh chucky's in love yeah yeah exactly when exactly like, it's so simple for the whole song right yeah, yeah. like any you know anybody could play yeah. the groove for most of that song <laughs> yeah. but yeah. then it comes to that stop 
and he so, does that little 30 second and you're like oh there's gad that's it. there he is <laughs> and and it's it's objectively great that's yeah. the thing is it's like yeah that's so great when you understand what it physically takes to play with rhythm like that mm-hmm but it's also ear candy. Yeah. Right? It hits the radio and hits that listener's ear and it's like I want to know more about that. Yep. Right? Yep. And um and that's what you're trying to do on every instrument with those little moments you have especially in the studio, right? You're yeah. trying to just kind of sprinkle that thing on there that persists and and draws people in. Right. One of the great takeaways I had when I started doing Nashville sessions and you're working with all these amazing drummers, um it was Travis McNabb who did this. The, I saw do this the first time, but he yeah. I was going to ask you from, about him. Yeah. like I I need to get more hip to him. I just I feel like he's who I want to be when I grow up. Uh, like. he's, in so many ways, he's he's uh, a, a human hero to me. I, I love him and and his approach to music, his approach to life. He's mm-hmm. just great, great human. Snappy dresser. Snappy dresser. I mean the whole the whole game. Um, but one of the great takeaways I got, I met a session and and a typical. Nashville session like that is it's it's very brief, right? And you come in, a lot of times the musicians know each other but don't necessarily play together all the time. Mm-hmm. This group has been put together by this producer in this situation. You've got a three-hour session. You're going to maybe get through three songs. So you got to listen to the demo. Somebody charts it, go in and play it. And we're handing out charts and Travis takes the lyric sheet. And it was one of those moments of like, oh, okay, but, you know, but here's the arrangement. And he's like, no. I need the lyric sheet. Yeah. Like, I'm here to play this song. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to play this arrangement of these chords. Right. And it's like, okay, get it. And then I'm watching him and he's, then all the notes he needs, all the information he needs has been written in this song by this songwriter mm-hmm. to be put down. And he's going to sculpt his drum part to emphasize, react to, support that lyrical content. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, ninja move. I get it now, right? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. you're hired here to record a song. Right. I was, you know, um, and I've seen other drummers do that in that same environment. So it's such a great takeaway that like your job as a drummer is not to play the best drum part ever, right? Yeah. Your job as a drummer is to make sure this song gets communicated in a way that it needs to be communicated. Right. What that typically means is dynamic Perfection. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and, that, and well, space and space and not cluttering it up yeah. and 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 finding that little moment to just give yep. that song some, you know, salt and pepper. And yeah. um yeah, and I mean that's what Gad did on Chucky's in Love. Yep. I feel like those little moments, I'm I'm trying to put myself in the mentality of like those little moments that you find and take advantage of are kind mm-hmm. of your reward. Yeah. They're, they're your little payoff yeah. for turning your drummer brain off yeah. and putting your drummer ego yeah. in the next room totally. and just like doing the job yep. the way it needs to be done. And then your your little treat yep. is you get that little thing. Uh-huh. And then every, you know, if somebody hears you play that one little thing and they're yep. like, that's why I got you. Yep. That's yep. why I hired you. Totally. Um, totally. And it's, it's so much less of a, I don't know, it, it's, it's a... It's a more subtle reward, right? Like it's, it's not what was on the poster in the music store <laughs> when we got our drum kits, right? Yeah. This is not what we were signing up for, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but I've learned about my personality. Like I, I used to think that, um, you know, my machine and my ego ran on applause, mm-hmm. right? Like standing on stage mm-hmm. and a bunch of people out there just like, yeah, mm-hmm. fuck you, like losing mm-hmm. their minds. And that's great. I yeah. still love that. But I've learned that what means even more to me yeah is when a single person 
comes up to me after a show oh, and was true. like, man, you sounded great. Yep. Or when somebody I'm working for is like, I says, I love that moment that you just found, right? Yep. Like anytime I have that little kind of one-on-one -on -one moment, like yep. that's my payoff. Yep. Totally. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to look for more of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you, hey, you, tell me something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. started drums from a young age and like all of us were just like the just the metal the posters mm -hmm. the huge fucking drum sets all yep. that oh yeah um and as you you know got older and became a multi-instrumentalist and became a producer and a and a songwriter and all this like have your heroes changed drum wise mm, yeah um yes and no i mean i was uh uh you know that animal muppet being behind the drum kit is is no um you know is significant right it's symbolic yeah me. i mean he's a hero for all of us yeah so. i mean it's a, it's a given right <laughs> uh, because because they nailed it with this character they really did right which was drummers want to emote <laughs> right that's all they want to do yeah right is get it out right that's how they ended up in that chair to begin with yeah. right and then here's this character that just embodies that right he has no filter just right. like ah, just when like, he's yeah. not drumming he's screaming yes it's just exactly, exactly. <laughs> um and and for me like as a child of the 80s uh stuart copeland like changed my life in mm -hmm. terms of that feel of energy coming off a record mm -hmm. um, and knowing that that's possible, right? And he was superhero yeah. to me when I was young, right? Um, and, and I think I went through a series of these kind of um, drummers who can play it all, right, period, where it, like it, it seemed like expertise at the instrument was uh, – how you achieve mm. what I would call success. Right. right? And it's what turned you on. What it's, turned me it's on. It's what turned yeah. your brain on yeah. fire. Like. And, and it's interesting because I feel like we're kind of going through this era again with YouTube where it's like, we're really appreciating these, these people who are virtuosos at their instruments mm -hmm. and we're getting to see them do their thing. And it's really impressive. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're 12 and I'm like, what the heck's going on? But I scroll past that yeah, shit. Totally, I'm totally. like, I don't, um, if, I, can't, I can't, I <laughs> can't. But I feel like, you know, like had, had when I was 13 or 14, me, I would be able to turn on what was unknown to me, a computer, right. and watch somebody be a virtuoso at the instrument. Like, I think that one, it would have been like horrifying and like perhaps debilitatingly, you know, but, but also would have been inspirational in the way that like I could only get that through glimpses of mm -hmm. these performances by Rush or by, you know, whatever. Yeah. But for me, you know, uh, my, my all time uh, keyboard influence, hands down, is Terry Adams, who's the keyboard player in, in RBQ. Hmm. And uh, he just embodies what I want to, the spirit I want to bring to creating and performing music. Which, For, forgive me, what's RBQ? Yeah, in, in RBQ. In RBQ? Yeah. And they're like one of these bands that, um, uh, beloved amongst few and unknown to most. Got you it. know, okay. like. Um, but they've been around since the 60s, still exist, mm -hmm. uh, been through different incarnations and New Rhythm and Blues Quartet is what it stands for. Okay. And um, 
just a rockin', crazy, just the bar band you would love to see on any night. Yeah. Um, and have had a very strange career. Um, but one of the things that the, – the thing they do really well is communicate energy. Mm-hmm. Okay. They write some great songs. I went to see them. My, my brother had um, – suggested I go check out NRBQ and I was in college and I went to listen to their NRBQ at Yankee Stadium record. And this is 90s. And I listened on the little like disc station at the record store. Remember we used yeah, to have yeah. those? <laughs> and I was like, I don't get this. Um, but they were coming to St. Louis where I was in college and I drugged my band and I was like, guys, you know, my brother rarely steers me wrong. He mm-hmm. said, go check out this band. And it's a cold, uh, cold night in uh, St. Louis and we're all stuffed in this rock club and the back door of the stage opens and and again I've, I've only listened to a few songs of this band and I just I know my brother likes them I don't get them and in piles this band and through the door it's snowing and like crazy cold and they're all bundled up and they're just like taking off their scarves and jackets and they're starting to and he's playing clavinet and it's rolling around the stage and there's horn players and like what erupted on the stage was just pure joy, mm. pure rock and roll, yeah, yeah. unhinged, loose, like uh, unpredictable, mm-hmm. raw. I mean, I think it's what it must have felt like to see the Stones in 1960 something, right? right? You know, like yeah. like this is this is not uh, derivative. This is mm-hmm. this is in this moment, right. right? Yeah, yeah. And and I knew in that moment, like, oh, I need to stop trying to like meticulously create and i need to get out of my own way yeah right i need to embody what animal is i need to embody this sort of like create just ride the ride yeah yeah right? yeah so all that to say uh tom Ar- Ar- arduino i never get his uh arduino i think is is the longtime drummer in rbq um he also embodied this this sound and feel that I've always wanted and and I didn't understand at the time but he he plays with swing mm-hmm. doesn't play swinging he plays with the notion of swing mm-hmm. and and uh, talking about Travis McNabb he's another drummer that absolutely is a master at this and I, I find a lot of musicians out of New Orleans seem to be hip to this vernacular mm-hmm. which is let's not play straight or play swing. Or dial in what I've learned through drum machines, like a 53% swing. Yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> it's not a precision game. It's let's redefine the space between our 16th notes yeah. as the song ebb and, ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that feel of that straight fill over the swinging song that mm-hmm. is so satisfying, right? Let's play with that in this minute way all the time. Yeah. Let's let the energy of the song make it swing more right here and less here. Yeah. Let's play a straight eighth note thing against it. Like that all made sense to me. Now we're playing with the energy of music. Right. Now we're we're creating this tension in the room. Yeah. And like so to get like super technical oh, about right. it, there's a uh you're you're talking about like there's a grid. For yeah. a song, right? Yeah. Whether it's a quarter note or an eighth note, or like yeah. there's a yeah. grid. Yeah. So yeah. rather than imposing a second smaller grid in the middle of that existing grid, right. just like play around in that existing grid. Yes. yes. Um, and yeah, that's something that I, um, 
I went to jazz school, right? Uh-huh. I got like a master's fucking degree in jazz. Yeah. Um, and it's it's worked against me in so many ways. Sure, and sure. this is this is one because yeah. like in college big band There is a swing. Or it's straight. Or it's, it's yeah. either straight yep. or it's swing. Yep. And like sometimes it's a soft swing, sometimes it's a hard swing, yep. but it's it's A but or it's, B. Yes, exactly. And it'll be the same in bar two as it is in bar eight. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, so this, like, first of all, the way that other musicians use the word swing <laughs> yes. is <laughs> yes. like, like sometimes mysterious and sometimes enraging to me. Exactly. It's like Inigo Montoya. Like you keep using this word. <laughs> yes, I don't yes, think it means exactly. what do you think it means? Exactly. Um, so like, you know, I, I, uh, I sort of, um, buck against that notion mm-hmm. in that way sometimes, but yeah. I'm, I'm also just like super open to what you're talking about. Yeah. Just like, don't, don't make it a thing. Just let it be whatever it wants to be within that little space. And yeah. if that's not exactly the same in the chorus as it is on the verse, yeah. or if it's not exactly the same in your fill as yeah. it is in your yeah. groove, exactly. like just let it. Or in your kick pattern yeah. to your hi-hat, <sighs> right? <laughs> Right? And and in essence, it's wrong, right? Yeah. You're playing with, with, with what's wrong. Mm-hmm. And when you're playing with what's wrong, inherently incorrect, with expertise, now you're playing outside the box. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And this is what, you know, this lo-fi, uh, hip-hop, chill stuff that is that is that has been so ubiquitous over the last few years. We've been making some of that music, and that involves me having to understand why it is. Why does this exist, right? And... And one of the things that I think is so interesting is that people are finding there's a meditative nature to unpredictable music, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out we were making, un- we'd been making unpredictable music for a long time. Yeah. Now we have Pro Tools. Now it's all predictable or yeah. we have loop machines, you know, whatever. So it's a, it's a reaction to how it feels to have predictable music shoved down our throats all the time. Yeah. What happens if that kick pattern is lazy or that snare comes in late or the sample that's behind everything is evolving mm-hmm. so that you don't ever hear it loop. Yeah. Right? What yeah. happens if your ears get the benefit of unpredictable outcomes in music? Well, mm-hmm. let me let me play you a record from Stax, 1964. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, or like a grunge record from the 90s or, grunge, or something. Yes, like exactly. I grew up on that shit and right. I, I love it. And it's how I learned to play. Like before I went to jazz school, yeah. I was, you know, just this 90s rocker who was kind of coming up with drum parts and yeah. the kick wasn't the same every bar. And yeah. now I'm recording a song and I listen back and I'm like, oh, I played the and a three instead of the uh, that bar. I yes. best better do it over. But I have to I have to turn that off and be like, no, just let it be like the yeah. way you played that song yeah. that time. Right. For Christ's sake. You captured that energy in that moment. Yeah. And that's what like the the um the idea of human decisions in the moment, I mm-hmm. think, are what programming robs music yeah. of. Like there's yeah. a place for it. Yeah. It's not going away. Yeah. I'm I'm not going to win this battle. <laughs> but I you know, it, it used to be, you know, the um the reason to hire a human drummer was because electronic drums didn't sound any damn good. Yeah. Just tonally. Yeah. Right. They sounded yeah. electronic. Yeah. Well, now that's not that's the irrelevant. Case, yes. Right. So um, you you can even get the computer to make decisions as yeah. the song goes along. Yeah. Um, but they're still not going to be the same as a human being would make in the moment. Yeah. Based on what they're feeling in the room. Yeah. And I think that, I mean... <laughs> 
they're going to be able to do that soon now too. And, <laughs> right. But I, like that's okay. that's the drum I'm trying to beat now. It's yes. like no, yes. I'm a human being that's going to yes. make some decisions yes. that your computer isn't going to make. Yes. So give me 125 dollars for yes. Christ's sake. Yes. Totally. Totally. <laughs> well, and I, what I think is interesting <clears throat> is, is seeing technology evolve towards that, like. Um, the Electron Digitac is one of the drum machines that I love and, and love to use. And it has built into it unpredictability. Mm-hmm. So I can I can go in there as after I've created a pattern and create the chaos that will then change that pattern over time. Right. Right. Now, it's still on some level predictable. Mm-hmm. But what I love is that the tools in themselves and it's about like I can nudge a snare. So the, snudge hap- the, the snare will happen a few ticks later. Right unpredictably right right i can go in there and kind of create this looseness Mm -hmm. within the system itself um it'll never replace a drummer and so hear that from me right 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 and and i and i'm all for the evolution of technology uh creating these sounds because i think ultimately all you do is create the room for that person to show up and sit down and be like oh no but that's Wait a minute. Right. You know, that actually happened in real time. Right. Like you're saying, no no matter what you can program into a computer, it's still not going to be Travis McNabb looking at a lyric sheet. Exactly. Exactly right. Uh, exactly right. And I, I think if more drummers, like I said, I want to put myself in the headspace of like just bringing a, a special um, moment or a special approach mm-hmm. that only I can do that, that only I can do in that moment, in that room. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just try to find that. Well, and I think it's a little cliche, but I think it's absolutely true that you make music with people mm-hmm. and who those people are is the most important thing about making that music. Yeah. So if I was to replace musicians on a session with quote unquote better musicians, technically better musicians, mm-hmm. I'm going to get a different recording but it's not going to be necessarily better. Right. It's those humans that matter. And as a session player, I mean, I've I've played on too many records to count, mm-hmm. right? Um, and have had amazing, amazing experiences in my life of walking into studios with, you know, sometimes strangers and making music. And the bottom line is it's, it's kindness, it's generosity of spirit. Yeah. It's openness... Um, it's willingness to joke over lunch. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, these are the things that make music. You don't think of it right. when you're coming up. You yeah. want to be great. But it's being that human being in that room as you create something that's so crucial. Yeah. It's crucial to the artist. It's crucial to the producers. And ultimately, I think on some level, makes a difference to what you hear at the end of the day. Yeah. So. Yeah. And if even if it doesn't, make a difference to, you know, an objective listener, uh, who, you know, may or may not pick up on that. Um, it, it matters to you and to your experience of the process of making that record and your, you know, your memory of that musical experience with those people. Well, and it has more to do with you getting rehired, honestly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Be good enough and be a great person. You'll get rehired. Yeah. That's always the game. Yeah. But uh, we're talking about the Beatles get back earlier. I think that's one of the things that's been fascinating about watching that for me is realizing how young, yeah, how immature, <laughs> and just how much of an asshole those guys could be towards each other. Yeah. In a very playful way, in right. a very familiar way if somebody's played in bands for years. But like 
how much energy was in that room as they were making that music right that has gone on to be so important in so many ways mm -hmm. and uh and you realize man that's that's true on nirvana's you know that's true on all of these records mm -hmm. all of this music that makes up our lives yeah, there yeah. was something going on in the studio that day yeah. there was some group of people there was some exchange there was some environment that played into creating that moment yeah um yeah <laughs> good or bad well it's i mean it's so mind-blowing that like they weren't even 30 you know it's amazing and and when you like when you listen to their records mm -hmm. um it's it's mind-blowing in that way like god these they, they yeah. were babies yeah they were children yeah. and and they just you know yeah monumental musical achievements but yeah. then you watch get back yeah and you're like Oh, they're like emotional babies. Yeah, like, totally. <laughs> and like, rich right. and like don't know what to do with yeah, themselves. Yeah, like they it's made, like, you know, they they made the most iconic music yeah, ever, but yeah. being in a room with them was yeah. like, Jesus Christ, you guys are <laughs> Well, and I've been thinking about I've I've always had this this um this perspective on the Beatles that I think, you know, is we're we're of the generation that discovered the Beatles out of order. Yeah. And I think it means something. Like to me, the Beatles were Sgt. Pepper's and then a bunch of other records I discovered after I heard that one mm -hmm. and with no context to the arc of their career. Yeah. Okay. And I've kind of put that together later. But when you look at it, I listened to some of their best music followed by some other great music. And then it petered out into like rare B-sides getting released in the 80s that were kind of shit and in German. Right. That's my arc <laughs> of the Beatles. Yeah. Right. As opposed to as if you were if if they were your band. Mm -hmm. Right. Then what you discovered was this band making this kind of uh, reproduced American pop stuff mm -hmm. being filtered through them that then turned into this art, that then turned into this journey, that then ended up with Let It Be. Yeah. That's what you were left with. Right. Was this like amazing record with interesting orchestrations and weird – like – there's a whole different art. And and watching get back, I'm like, wow, this is this is this band's swan song. Mm -hmm. And what? they didn't even know it at the time. And they really. didn't know it. Oh, <laughs> so amazing. Yeah. Like I haven't gotten to the part where George leaves. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. But like it, it's just blowing my mind that I'm I'm in the first episode right now. Yeah. And and I listened to an interview with Peter Jackson and they, he talked about like how he just wanted to put the viewer in the room yeah. with the Beatles. And I found myself thinking, like, the you know. This is they. They don't know this is the last thing they'll yep. ever do yep. until that day. You know, yep. like they they enter this process thinking, well, this is the next thing we're doing. Yeah, and then after that, we're gonna do. Some, maybe we'll start going on tour again. Yep. There's gonna yep. be, but like they just enter this process. Um, like the train is rolling, right? Yeah. You don't know the train is about to crash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The because you're in is, it, right? The train is just rolling. Now I've uh, to turn this back to me. <laughs> I've had that experience of uh, I was in the band Train for a while. Oh, that speaking of Train, and, right? <laughs> and yeah, and joined them as a side person, and then was in the band. And I was I was I had that moment of being with people who had achieved some some you know pop stardom, mm -hmm. right? Some household nameness, yeah, to the art that they were making, mm -hmm. um, and them having to face. Like I was on the record that didn't do as well as the record before it, mm -hmm. right? 
And as a band, that's a, it's always a moment, right? It's sort of like, is this it? Yeah. Have we done what we're going to do? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and got to experience that with this group of guys. I was an outsider in many ways. Even after I joined the band, they formed the band. I had no claim to and had no desire to claim you know, their success, mm-hmm. right? I, my success is the success that happens while I'm with them. I'm comfortable right. with that, right? Yeah. But it was clear to me, like, and this is prior to Hey Soul Sister, right? So you yeah. got to put yourself in that perspective. Um, it was clear to me, it's like, guys, you're done. Like, this this has been written. It's fine. You've embraced that. So this you was know? after Drops of Jupiter? Yeah, after Bef- Drops of Jupiter. And there was uh, Calling All Angels was a big single right, after that. Right, that, that right, right. Um, um, this is done. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, and trying to be like, because I'm friends with the guys too. And I'm also business partners with them. Pat had done a solo record. They had been off for a while. I'm at, at with Sugarland at this point. So I've sort of like shifted gears anyway. Like mm-hmm. I'm desperately trying to be in two bands, which was its own adventure. I should write that book at one point. <laughs> I spent three years like saying yes to gigs with both bands. And that involved a lot of uh, chaos. Um, a but lot of flying, I would imagine. It was a lot of flying. Um, <laughs> let me just say, I have I have personally rented a private plane and uh, without the funds to do so. It's, it's brutal. Just to get to the yeah, gig. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but uh, having that perspective of sort of like being inside something and be like, okay, guys, I, it's okay to hang up your hat now. Like, mm-hmm. be a nostalgia act. It's okay. Go play your hits. Like, yeah. you can have the rest of the year off. You know, like, <laughs> don't try to continue to chase a dream that's not yours anymore. Hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Hard to say. Yeah. Hard to hear. Sure. Right? Um, ultimately left that band <laughs> um, <laughs> under my own uh, decisions. But but I was smart enough to see that, you know, they wanted to keep going for it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think that was a smart business idea. But also, I just I didn't think they were making the decisions that that I felt were going to, like, fit with that life. Right. Yeah. Um, and amazingly, it worked for them. And mm-hmm. I'm very proud of that work that they did. Like, yeah. I don't make any claim to it. And it was, it's their success is theirs and they've worked hard at it. Right. Um, but it so could have gone either way. You're saying like <laughs> you, you in, in this time period, you were like, I, I think this is done. I think you've done your thing. Yeah. And, uh, and then eventually moved on from the band, but they, they kept the mentality of like, no, we're still going yeah. for it. No, there's still more. Yeah. And they, they ended up being right. Yeah. Cause Hey, soul sister. Absolutely. Hit. Right. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I saw them on that tour. Um, so we had started the record that Hey Soul Sister was on and kind of started and scrapped it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to leave before we started a record. We had a, a sort of an internal deal that that I would benefit from the record I was a part of, even if I wasn't in the band. And that yeah. I knew that was wrong, mm-hmm. right? Like my moral compass was like, <laughs> I'm not going to make the record and yeah. then be like, okay, guys, uh, anyway, got to go. Um <laughs> And so it was important that I was to leave before a record cycle um, and had been on the road with Sugarland for almost three years at this point, right? While playing the occasional train show, and Pat had been out doing a solo record and there was no any indication that I was going to be busy, right, in this other band. And it's I'm a band member, so it's like, we don't work. I got no money. Right. You know, like it's not... There's no paycheck or, or retainer or, you know, like, yeah. uh, and I don't have the money they had in the bank. So I also didn't have the financial position 
to just hang out on my sailboat until it was time to do a new record. Right. right? It would be a canoe. <laughs> but all on that. Lake Alatuna. <laughs> right. <laughs> but all that to say, also, like, I've, I've always, I've been a side person my whole life. I love it. Yeah. I love supporting what's going on. Yeah. Right. It is, it's where I know, I know I'm supposed to be. So yeah. my whole time in the band was a stretch for me and doing the press and the photos and the, you know, all that stuff. Uh, happy to do it. And I'm thrilled that I got to. But, mm-hmm. you know, I knew it wasn't, I wasn't comfortable in that. Anyway. Mm. Um, but I went to see them on that tour and Hey Soul Sister had come out and, uh, I, I knew it was their single, I knew it was catchy, but it was just too high. Like I'd been songwriting with them. And so I was just like, ah, you know, like I would have moved it down a few steps and I don't know. It's, I'm not sure it has the thing, that yeah, thing, you yeah, know, yeah. and like, and I feel like I know enough to be able to say, cause I'm inside and outside, you know, right. whatever. <laughs> and boy, was I wrong. Just wrong. I mean, just, you talk about like, like it persisted as a worldwide hit, you know, like not just a hit, but like, let me hear this every time I go to the grocery store. Right. Like, I was wrong. Everybody, I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so like when you hear it in the grocery yeah. store, is there, is there like a twinge of regret or bitterness or I mean like... yes and no I mean I'd, I'd be a fool to say uh, that I'm glad I didn't benefit from right. staying in a band that got even more successful after I left right 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 I'd be a fool yeah but uh, I would say that uh, everything in my life that I that is important to me sitting here came after that decision hmm Interesting. My wife, my stepson, all of the stuff that I've achieved career-wise, right. like my health, my like, and the projects you're doing now. Every like, you might still be playing with Train. I would, I would definitely be doing that because that would be an incredible gig. <laughs> right, right, right. But you know, you you don't have that benefit when you're making these decisions in the moment. You don't have the benefit of like, oh, I know this will be better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like. That that tinge is always there, right? Because right? right. I could be a multimillionaire right now. I'm sure. Yeah. Right. I'd I'd have a nice house. Yeah. Right. I'd be comfortable. Yeah. I would have quote unquote won the lottery in that sense. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um. But all I mean, without and without question, all the things I value came after that decision. Yeah. Yeah. And never would have, never would have happened. And in addition to like, you know, what happened to you after that, like I, something I'm really fucking working on is, um, to, uh, not feel, um, jealousy or envy or bitterness Mm -hmm. first. Like I, you know, I'm not going to bullshit myself and say it's not there, but I try to just sort of redirect myself and be happy for that person or that band or what, like, if they're doing good work, if yep. they earned it, if, yep. you know, it, I just kind of check myself and say, good on them. Yeah. Good for you. Yes. And, um, and I think part of that is owning those feelings, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah, I think I was certainly raised with the perception that, that I'm supposed to be bigger than those feelings, mm-hmm. right? I'm supposed to not feel jealous of the success of others. Right. Okay? That's, that's not real, Right. right? But the, the thing is to own those things, right? And yeah. be like, oh, man, like, I'm jealous I'm not experiencing that thing. Like, Saturday Night Live has been on my bucket list my entire life, and mm-hmm. I don't think it'll ever happen now. Mm-hmm. And when I see people I know playing Saturday Night Live, I feel envious. Yeah. I want that for me. Right, right. right. And that's okay, because I can own that and 
be really happy for my friend who's doing it. I don't begrudge them that at all. Matter yeah. of fact, I want to like reach out. You yeah. know, I want to be like, oh, is it everything you wanted it to be? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. It's like Dan Savage uh, said. Uh, you know, mon- monogamy is like being in a being in a monogamous relationship is not about not wanting to fuck other people. Yeah. <laughs> It's about wanting to fuck other people and, and dealing with to. those feelings and choosing not to. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which is playing music in many ways. It's right? Exactly. You know? Exactly. one of the interesting things about appreciating music as a musician is that you know you hear it for the parts that it is mm-hmm. and 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 to bring us back to drumming like i'm a fantasy drummer in way more bands than i'm a fantasy keyboardist for right <laughs> yeah there's really nobody i want to strap my you know like i'm listening to them and i'm like i'm wearing the cape and playing that solo right <laughs> but pretty much every band i love i am imagining on some level being that drummer Mm -hmm. because it feels so good to play those songs yeah right like i went to see the peter gabriel so reimagined tour a few years ago so he you know he did the record again with the original um musicians was it with manu with manu katz playing drums and i met i went to see it red rocks flew out to red rocks one of the things i and i recommend this to all music fans every year post-covid look at the red rock schedule when it comes out Mm, yeah and if there's a show you love Go see it there. Yeah. It will be a better show than any other. It'll be the highlight of their tour. Yeah. And it's a direct flight from Atlanta to... to, to, And I mean, as you're saying this, I'm like, I've got friends and family in Denver. Oh, yeah. Make it easy. It's even easier. I have to do this. So so when when the Peter Gabriel tour was coming up, um, and I surprised my wife with this. It was one of our early uh, in our marriage kind of gifts to her. But um, And she, she was in line. Not knowing who we were going to see, like I did such a good job of getting there, um, <laughs> but but that that record so like I know every drum fill, mm-hmm. I know exactly where the kick falls on every song, yeah, right. Like I know it intimately because when I listen to it, I feel those drums, right? Like I feel those parts, right? Ugh, and watching it and hearing it, oh, it's just, yeah. Oh man! So, and so with Manu on drums and Tony Levin. Tony Levin was on bass. bass. Um, yeah, and the rest of the band. I, I wish I could pull them all out, but yeah, it was the original So Band. Without, and, um, of course, he had he had his daughter singing um, instead of Kate Bush. Anyway, yeah. So that, you're yes. you're like that. That's one of the records that you're like the fantasy drummer on. Oh, absolutely. Like. <laughs> yes. But I, I mean, uh, honestly, it's almost every record that I love. You know, I'm yeah. I'm hearing it from that drummer's perspective. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. I'd say with the exception of like REM and some of the '80s like stuff that I love, but was really you know 
it's a, more about the twang of the guitar right than it is about the the pulse yeah i don't know that's yeah. probably that's arguable and i would happily take that argument with people because that's probably <laughs> another side of that but like i've been i've been doing a lot of nostalgia listening and um there's an artist called robin hitchcock that just blew my mind when i was uh, early in my teens mm-hmm. and i loved his witticism and i loved the ridiculousness of his lyrics and um, but also loved his melodic sense. And then I loved the music and um, OMD, Orchestral Maneuvers of the Dark. It's another band that like just hit me hard yeah. as a preteen and mm-hmm. teen, right? And I go back and listen to that stuff and I realize, oh man, it's, you know what? It's great drumming. That's what I was hearing. <laughs> yeah. You know, like what I was hearing actually uh, uh, that was tying this stuff together mm-hmm. was uh, a very strong sense of groove. Yep. Right. Yep. And that can take so many different forms. And and you you were mentioning earlier about how like table stakes for you to listen to recorded music yeah. is like it has to sound good. Yeah. It has to be good yeah. quality. Yeah. And for for me, th- like that's probably table stakes for me as well. But the, yeah. the other thing is like I, I just have to hear a compelling drum presence. Yeah. It doesn't have to be an inventive part. Yeah. It doesn't have to like reinvent the wheel or be super complicated or something. It there just has to be something about it that fucking means business. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's like like I said, that can appear in so many different ways. But yeah. like when there's a human with intent who knows who the fuck they are. Yes. Making those drum sounds, it's like, okay, I'm in. And, the, you know, the trope is that the producers always fire the drummer, right? <laughs> a band gets a deal, producer yeah. fires the drummer, yeah. right? And I think what would be – and that's because typically, uh, or in those situations, uh, you know, the band is figuring it out and the singer's probably great and there's probably a couple good songs. So there's potential. Mm-hmm. But when you make this recording, that drummer needs to be that. They need to be there and command that, right? right. They need to be great. And that's the thing to fix as the producer. And I am guilty of this myself. I have gone into a situation and said, "Mm, we're not going to use your drummer. (laughs) That's just, sorry. You know, meet Travis McNabb. He will play on your record and it's going to be great. Um, Because it's, it's, it's my job. Yeah. Right. So I know this thing. I think what would be really fascinating is to, what are those records out there where the drummer wasn't good enough? And got to do the gig. Mm. And therefore, we're left with this subpar, you know, you know, the answer is fuck the first Dark Water record. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, I would be curious of that, like, particularly in the 90s, right? Grunge takes off, right? And there's this huge signing of bands. Mm-hmm. Bands were important, not yeah. individuals, bands, right? And so you have Soundgarden doing their thing and you have Stone Temple Pilots and you have, you know, Nirvana and you have these like, and Pearl Jam and, and those all have great drummers, yeah. right? But there's got to be a few of those, like Mud Honey. Um, I I don't know enough about these, but I would love to kind of pick somebody's brain who was really into college rock in the '90s and be like, where was the, who was the drummer that shouldn't have made the record, mm, right? Or yeah. the record that would have been better had the producer got their way, right? <laughs> and even the drummers that did make the record on a lot of that '90s stuff, like it was kind of rough around the edges. Yeah, you know, like they they I think those those drummers were great live. Yeah, and they pulled it off in the studio, yeah. but like. You know, a lot of it wasn't on the click. Yeah. Some of those fills yeah. were rushed. Yeah. Um, it wasn't, you know, perfect snare hits yeah. every single time. Yeah. Um, but that's what's great yeah. about it. And, yeah. like, that's the music I grew up on. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I, I just feel like there's too much, both, like, in, in the industry at large and in my brain, yeah. there is uh, too much um, 
emphasis placed on just sort of objective yeah. um, Correct. consistency. And correctness. Yes. Quote unquote. Correctness. Yeah. It's yeah, not perfection no. necessarily. It's just correctness. And it's, uh, you know, we have the ability in our studio to grid out every performance we do and then sound replace with samples. Right. And so it's not, should I invest the time and energy on those things? Mm-hmm. It's, do we do we skip that step this time or not? Yeah. Right. It's a it's a given that we're going to wrangle stuff into some order. Mm-hmm. Right. And therefore stamp out, you know, those moments. Now, what you don't know, or I think what we, we we're, what is short sighted is to think that when they were making Otis Redding records, Stax records, that everything Al Jackson played was freaking amazing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. First of all, not true. Okay. <laughs> There's definitely some takes where he dropped the groove and it was unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace, Al Jackson. <laughs> but uh, also, as a musician coming into that session, he was at a higher skill level than just about everybody who's making records right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because that was what the job required, mm-hmm. right? That that barrier of entry was higher. Like you had to be great in the take because everybody, the mics are in the room. There's no isolation. There's no fixing. Right. There's no, you know, like you don't have that crutch to build on. And now we do. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think there's a bit of a misconception that this great music that we might refer to, these great moments in music, um, were because we let them happen. Right. And now we don't have the luxury of time yeah. to allow those things to finally get good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now we got to take it and get done. Right. You know. And I think the, the availability of that crutch, um, like, you know, obviously there are some drummers and some people who record music who need that crutch, yeah. right? Who are not sure. good enough. Yeah to like play the take start yeah. to finish and for yeah. it to be good. So they yeah. need that crutch, but I think the availability of that crutch has caused uh too many uh engineers, producers, yeah. everybody even at the top level to apply the crutch to people who don't need who it. Who don't need it. That's exactly it. Like exactly let it. Travis McNabb be yeah. fucking Travis McNabb. Yeah. Like you don't yeah. need to grid his shit out. Right. He feels great. Right. You don't need to replace his sounds with samples. Right. Right. Like let right. let great musicians be great musicians. Yep. It's yep. I, like get off my lawn. Yeah. Just, <laughs> oh, man. But but again, <laughs> what I come back to in these moments, it's a similar argument about fidelity, right? Like we've we've gotten obsessed with compressed audio and like listening to stuff on our iPhone speakers, and somehow we spend billions of dollars and time and energy to make stuff great, mm-hmm. and then it gets dumbed down by the time it gets delivered, right? Right. And woe is us. Nothing will ever be good again. <laughs> <laughs> what happens is, and this is the same. Great with like, talking to you, man. Right, <laughs> same thing with sort of overgrading or over over manipulating performances. What happens is that creates the room for the person to show up and make something that feels so organic mm-hmm. or so high definition, right, or so unique in this barren wasteland of conformity that genius is born. Mm. And this is, you know, the. Uh, Kamasi Washington, I think, is is sort of a great example of like, you know, uh, innovative music is dead. Jazz is dead. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. And then here is this big band hip hop complexity that embraces, you know, what is, you know, in essence, built on prog rock. Yeah. You know, like, and 
And here we are, however many years later, in this beautiful world of Vol- uh, what's their name? You know, uh, all of this YouTube funkiness, musical nerdiness. Oh, like Wolfpack, Wolfpack and, and, and goof, goof funk. Yeah, you ever, you know, like, <laughs> I think all of that is from people having this eureka moment of complexity in music. Mm-hmm. That is not all Kamasi Washington, but but that's there's this sort of birth of this era yeah because we were getting dumbed down mm-hmm. we were getting delivered stale predictable stuff mm-hmm. and somebody stepped out of that yeah and so all that to say and and, and i think that particularly in the drummer's view the more conformity the more that technology constraints what's beautiful in the performance the more that just sets up that slingshot <laughs> right for that for that chuckies and love fill for that right. thing that is so unique and special that we are instantly drawn into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The danger is that we create a whole world and generation of people who just aren't able to hear it when it happens. Yep. Right? Yep. Um, if, if all we hear is one thing, are our ears going to accept the other? Yeah. And yeah. you know. And I'm I'm wondering about just I was I was in a conversation on Reddit a couple of weeks ago about how just uh the like the sound of music these days, like mm-hmm. especially pop music, commercial mm-hmm. music, or music in commercials, mm-hmm. like to my ear it just is so abrasive. Right. No matter what the content is, no yeah. matter what yeah. the instrumentation, yeah. no matter what the genre, it yeah. just seems to like leap out of the phone at me yeah. in this yeah. bad, yep. like yep. aggressive way. Yep. And to your point, I mean it makes me wonder if music that doesn't like grab you by the fucking throat like yep. that sonically yep. does it have a chance yeah does he, it <laughs> here's why it does and I, this is the argument i'll take to my grave on this but um i might go there with you yeah <laughs> hit me <laughs> so so in that effort to to grab our attention right the commercial music through radio through uh, uh, even the compression of audio right yeah. so that it can be delivered in a way right um things are taken away and they're not added so every bit of that music has something that has been removed hmm. and then enhanced or exaggerated right. in order for it to grab your attention, right? There's only, there's only so much physical space and sound. Like the wave can only – that there is no more wave. Right. Okay. Right. So the, like compressed audio, the loudness wars, right? It's all just sort of budged into this block, mm-hmm. right? So instead of ups and downs, it like peaks – Blasts and ends, right? <laughs> like, and that's what it becomes, regardless. Yeah. Okay. So, we, when you, you, your brain is having to do work to fill in the gaps. Right. That's ultimately what happens. It's like when you read a sentence with all the vowels taken out. You can still read it, mm-hmm. right? But you're working. Yeah. Okay. And I find that that's what we're having to do as attention is span is diminished and as technology is delivering us little bits and clips into our brains are having to work all the time to fill in the missing information. Right. Right. What that means is when I give you something, when I put on a needle on a vinyl record and it's kind of blue. Yeah. Okay. And it is dynamic. And there, those waves are completely frozen. No compression. Right. You're not having to. Your brain is actually not having to fill in the bits, the the literal zeros and ones that have been taken out of the music. Right. Right. Your brain is not having to make up dynamic yeah. where there isn't dynamic. Right. It's soothing. 
like suddenly you're not having to work. Right. And I think that will always win. The trick is getting it to people. Yeah. And getting people in an environment to experience that. Yeah. But I think that's always going to win. And this is, you know, when I talk to like, especially young kids who are hustling their thing, right? And they want to figure out how to win quick. Yeah. You know, the thing I always tell them is just like integrity. Always make it great. Mm -hmm. If you always make it great, then you just have to be in the right place at the right time. If you shortcut it and try to over deliver it and try to get to the front of the line by yelling it, by compressing it, you know, whatever those things are to th- yeah. you think are competitive, yeah. then you're, it's a short-term win at best, right? Right. Just be there with, with the full vinyl record yeah. at the moment it's needed yeah. and drop the needle. And, and it doesn't like, have to be kind of blue. You don't have to be exactly. a jazz musician. Exactly. You could exactly. take that approach with prog metal. Yeah, oh, exactly. R- exactly. Right? But it's yeah. that approach. Yes. Let, let sonically, let the lows and highs be there. Performance-wise, mm-hmm. let all of the ebb and flow be there, right? Let let that energy you created, which is all music is, be captured and delivered in the best way possible. You will win. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You may not win what you thought you were going to win. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you yeah. will ultimately you, win. You rarely do. Uh, I was I was listening to an interview with uh, uh, Mark Maron, and he was interviewing like an old school comedian who had been like duking it out at the comedy store and cruise ships and yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. an, old, an old school guy. I don't remember his name. Of course, yeah, I don't remember yeah. his name. But um, he's, he's someone who is just like well respected in yeah. the comics community yeah. like an og got it never made it big yeah but uh uh he said you know really at, at my age um there's there's nothing more rewarding than uh the respect of your peers mm-hmm. and maron's without missing a beat maron said well sure it might be all you get <laughs> 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 critics choice yeah That's all, all... <laughs> yeah Oh man. Yeah. And it's so interesting what you were saying about like your brain having to do work to fill in the gaps of, yeah. of modern music. And it, like, it makes so much sense. Just the way the, the headspace I'm immediately put in when I hear music like that is just like, Oh fuck. I just, Oh yeah. God. Yeah. Your brain doesn't want to do the work. Huh. And I just shut down and I scroll past it. And like, oh, thank God that's over. It's, it's, <laughs> it's been, I'm really harping on the sonic side, but it's been my resistance to uh, satellite radio. Mm all along is that when I'm in my car and I'm driving down the road, I don't want to work. Yeah. And that compression that is put onto satellite radio in order for them to deliver you 8,000 radio stations at any given time off a satellite bouncing around the earth doesn't allow for that music to be delivered to me in a way that I don't have to work to fill in the gaps on some tiny subconscious level, Mm -hmm. but it's enough to be a pain in my butt and I'm driving down the road. It's not what I want to do. Yep. Like it, it all comes into a very fundamental thing. Right. Yeah. And, and it's funny. I've, I've only recently, um, I have a vintage car that, um, uh, I've been driving more recently because our son's older and I need to, whatever, I need to sell this thing. But anyway, it has a CD player in it and that's all it has. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm grateful that it has a CD player in it cause it was made before then. But, um, but when I put, when I drive around on that and I put in like Paul Simon's Graceland the other day and just kept driving yeah, because I was like, Oh, it's, it's so good. Yeah. And it's so pleasurable mm-hmm. to be delivered content that I don't have to work for, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that is just 
great. And I feel like that, you know, th- that medium is is so much better able to convey like a human performance that yes. we're talking about. Yes. Um, and I think like you were saying when when um, when a human performance is is uh, muted or attenuated mm-hmm. or just like mm-hmm. dehumanized, mm-hmm. Um, it just it makes it it makes everything about it less rich. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it asks you to work. Yeah. Right. It yeah. asks you to work to create the magic and that energy. Right? right. Here's the perceived energy, and you go ahead and feel that. It's like, ah, let me. Let me feel what it feels like to put on that record. Like, what, let me feel what was happening in that control room when they listened back to that performance. Right. Right. That's right. what I want. Yeah. That's why I listen to music. Right. And it, like, it asks you to do this work, but, and the supposed benefit is that like every snare hit clarity. sounds exactly the same. Yeah. Correctness. Correctness clarity. and clarity. Right. And, and that presumes that that clarity at the very beginning is, is, uh, Understood. Mm-hmm. It presumes that the producer, the artist, the songwriter know exactly how you're going to feel when you hear this. Yep. So let's get this exactly right. Right. So that they will feel the way I want them to feel. Yeah. Well, that's not how humans work. Yeah. Right. How humans work is what I'm creating is because I feel something. I'm going to put that energy on a record. And when you hear it back, you're going to feel something. Mm-hmm. What you're going to feel that's up to you. Right. Right? Like, right. that's the human experience. You're going to bring your life, your world to this song that made you feel a certain way, mm-hmm. that made your skin, you know, tingle and you want to whirl the window down and drive fast. Like, that's that's on you, the listener. Right. Right? Not this exact thing. But so what you're saying is that modern recording techniques uh, and production prioritize um, that clarity and correctness over over the human experience. I think of it. so, I right? Think and so I think too. that's because it, it's becomes particularly in the in the pursuit of commercial success. It becomes very predictable. Okay, right. I need it's to formulaic. Get, I need to get to a chorus this this soon. I need the me- melody to go up. I need it to you like. Okay, now I know the formula. Let me just create the formula because people will feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. Okay, not incorrect. But ultimately, over time, not satisfying. Yeah. Right? And that's where the frustration comes. And that's ultimately where success comes, Mm -hmm. right? Because people push against that. Right. And these outliers show up and we all go like, (gasps) you know, like, um, oh, Billie Eilish, I think is such an amazing example of, Mm -hmm. I just watched her Saturday Night Live performance the other day. And it's, it's beautiful how well she rides emotion Mm, yeah and irrelevant of genre she could care less what you define it as Mm -hmm. here i am telling you how she feels but (laughs) the perception is um that she's very artfully uh disregarding the constructs of genre Mm -hmm. and yet conveying emotion yeah right and sometimes somewhat complex emotion it's she's even like you know i don't have to dumb this down Mm mm-hmm and it's successful because it hits us. Yeah. Right? It's successful because it resonates. Mm-hmm. And it that's not because she hit the formula right. It's because she went against the formula really well. Right. 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 And that'll always win. It reminds me of uh, uh, the, the recent uh, Fiona Apple Fetch yes. the Bolt Cutters. Yes. Like, I listened to that outside while I was doing yard work. And, like, I wasn't really prepared. I, I've listened <laughs> to it one time. And I haven't revisited it since because... <laughs> I was out in the yard just like, Jesus Christ, this is raw. I know. 
Like, <laughs> and it's funny. I had the exact same experience. I was cleaning my house. I put the record on and I went somewhere, you yeah. know, like, yeah. like, and I put that record down. It was like, yeah, I don't need this again. Right. Right. It was, it's amazing. Yeah. Like she, she wrote and performed, uh, you know, this human experience in such a way that it was so clearly conveyed to me that I could put all of my stuff onto the scaffolding, even though I'm clearly not Fiona Apple and have not experienced the depths that she has, right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it was enough for me to, to like go on this emotional journey that day. Mm-hmm. And also enough for me to be like, I do not need to go on that emotional journey again. Like, I'm going to put this on the shelf, right? right. But it has stayed with me. Like, yeah. Yeah. That is that's the true brilliance, right? And I think that can happen um in every genre. Well, I'm I'm just thinking about like what I do in this room. Like yeah. this conversation is a good reminder uh that um my my approach in here uh since I started a year and a half ago has been to avoid getting wrapped up inside the computer Mm -hmm. and put all my attention and time into what's going on in this fucking room, Mm -hmm. get the mics, right. Mm -hmm. Get the gains, right. Get the Mm -hmm. tuning, right. Get my performance, right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, it's, it's just encouraging for me to kind of like keep going down that path. Yeah. Just get everything feeling and sounding good to you in this room. Yeah. And, you know, don't, don't go down a mixing rabbit hole, right? (laughs) Yes. Uh, mixing is someone else's job. (sighs) It is always going to be someone else's job. And, um, you know, just, and, and the results that I come out with as a result of that process, like if I, if I take however long it takes Mm -hmm. to get the sounds right in here and get my performance right and be happy with that, it's so much more rewarding to have a raw product yeah. than to wrestle with yeah. EQ and compression yeah. and, and all the shit yeah. that I know just enough to get in trouble with. Yeah, totally. You know, <laughs> don't involve holding drumsticks either. Yeah, right? you know? yeah, um, yeah. And and I think the next level of that, and it's something that I uh, am constantly learning and and uh, evolving around, is because I do a lot of remote session work too. And it's okay. How do I how do I get my gear sounding right? How do I you get the performance, you know, do the job well. Right. But how do I navigate my physical day? Yeah. My creative, you know, mountain mm-hmm. so that I deliver the best, they get the best out of me. Right. right? And it's so easy to do, okay, let's take 48. I'll get it this time. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'll take 49. Yeah. Get, you're right. How do you reset yourself when you're in that thing so that you are fresh Present and aware, yeah, and every moment of that recording, right? right? Which is woo, it's, its yeah. own like psychological challenge. Yeah, you know? yeah, and you gotta you gotta separate. I can't remember which drummer I was talking to about this. Maybe it was Dan Bailey. Um, but like when you're your own engineer, yeah, like you only have so much bandwidth. Yeah. You only have so much energy to sort of devote to work. Yeah, right. Yeah, and when you're doing it all yourself, like you gotta you gotta separate. Okay, I'm gonna tune the drums. Yep. I'm not even going to listen to this track. Like I'm, yep. I'm yep. not going to worry about my arrangement. Yep. Like I'm going to tune is just the drums, getting everything tuned. Yeah, and then you step away for a second, yeah. <laughs> or maybe a day, yeah. and then you come back and say, "Okay, I'm going to place the mics." Yeah, totally, <laughs> um, totally. And and that like that workflow is still feels like it's at a glacial pace. I can yeah. feel it speeding up a little bit, but yeah. like you know, like you said, sort of 
setting yourself up for success in terms of your ability to just sit down and play, your ability to be um, spontaneous and sort of vulnerable to yes. capture that performance, yeah. your ability, you know, giving your ears a break. Yep. Like if you're so spending you really two hours, yeah. right. If you're spending two hours like placing mics and listening to playback, yeah. then your ears are fucked yeah. for yeah. <laughs> a little while. And, yeah. And, and just creatively, you, you hear a piece of music and there's really only a few times more times that you're going to hear it with a fresh ear Mm -hmm. and then it goes away. Right. (laughs) Right. And now it's just that thing. Mm -hmm. And so there really is this urge, you know, I feel it when we go do sessions in the proper studio with proper musicians and the whole deal, it really needs to be one of the first few takes Yeah, or you need to go on this epic journey, take a lunch break and then come back and get it. Like you can't, you can't beat it into submission. It doesn't work. Yeah. Right. You, you need to be able to react to it with fresh ears mm-hmm. and you only have that for a short amount of time. And yeah. so it's, it's stressful in that sense. And you need to be unstressed when you do the performance So yeah. managing that, I think is a big, you know, learning curve that, that I'm always on. And, and I'm also music business minded. So I run our publishing company and I run our record company and I'm in, and the creative director for everything that we do. So my any given day, I am literally like switching hats. Like I've yeah. got to, I'm in spreadsheets and then I got to turn around and make something new. Right. Right. Yeah. And that shift is the bane of my, my life right yeah. now. Right. Yeah. I it's, know exactly what you're saying. Obviously I don't run a publishing company, but just like these different hats you wear. Yeah. Right. I got to, I got to teach today. I got to yeah. play this gig today. Yeah. I got to record this song today. I got to cook dinner. Yeah. I got to, <laughs> yeah. I got to, I got to be a dad, got to be a husband, got to be, you know, all these other things. And that you, you know, it's part of work life, right? Mm-hmm. This is not specific to us, but that creative part, when a part of your job is to be creative mm-hmm. and everything has to be, everything's on a clock on some level. Right. Right. Inevitably, you have to move on to something else eventually. Right. So, how do you set yourself up to be as creative as you, as the project deserves mm-hmm. on the clock? You know? Yeah. And to me, that's a, you know, it's a journey that I'm still on, but. I've learned a lot of tools along the way and I will I will very purposefully, you know, shift from one job to the other. Yeah. yeah. Um, I will do little exercises like I will not go from like business work to creative work without I, I do this thing where um I have a ridiculous number of like plug-in synths and stuff that you just acquire as a, a music producer and I know how to use you know, a handful of them that mm-hmm. I keep going to, right? So I've got all these, <laughs> these like esoteric, weird plugin synths, right? That I've spent five minutes listening to previous, uh, you know, patches and then never l- touched again. Right. So I have this project where, like, anytime I'm switching gears like that, I do ten minutes. I'm going to make a track using the next one on the list. Wow. You know, and I just like sit there and like, I'm. This is unrelated to anything else, and it's just playing with knobs right right yeah and it it resets my palette mm-hmm. you know and then i can stop doing that which the whole time i'm like i'm supposed to be doing something else I've got to, like, <laughs> you know like especially when it's like composing work where it's yeah. like okay we need to we need the spirit of this podcast character 
created in a melody. You yeah. know, it'd be nice yeah. by five today. Create, create something right now. Yeah. Could, Could you just create something yeah. like Can you give this? us like five examples? You know, <laughs> and so it's like, oh, um, and the clock's always ticking with that kind of stuff. But it will not work if I'm not in the right space to start. Yeah. And so I will purposefully do those kind of things that like help me shift gears. Yeah. And, um, Man, this is this is good timing because I, I'm I'm about to tackle a song uh, that I feel like I can just apply so much of what we've talked about <laughs> okay. to right down to the swing thing because okay. there's like there's a weird swing thing going on in this song oh, nice, that nice. I asked the songwriter like is do you want it like this or yeah. like did you mean that? this or that and yeah so <laughs> so check out uh, the NRBQs uh, at Yankee Stadium okay which is not actually live. Um, and you will feel that that tension between straight and swing that is just so beautiful in that drumming. It's so so cool. So yeah. live at Yankee Stadium is yeah. like a tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah That's yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> and they got me. Here's how gullible I am. Because <laughs> right. you said, like, here's this band I've never heard of. And they've been at, yeah, played and at Yankee was, Stadium. Shit, they did a live record right, at Yankee right, Stadium? Right, right, I got to right. get hip to these motherfuckers. Right, right, right. <laughs> Uh, well, man, thanks so much for coming over. Ah, thank you. I I feel like you know we we've entered each other's orbit in yeah. this way, like through the the musical theater thing, and and unless I'm mistaken, we have yet to actually play a note together. Exactly. <laughs> um, yes. but man, well, let's I, make 2022 the year we, we dude, put I, that one in the. I yeah. would love to. I I love yeah. your spirit. I love your approach. Same. And and I hope we get to make some noise together soon. We will do it this year. Cheers, man. Cheers. What a dude, right? Just the kind of cat you want to be in the room with, no matter what the project is. Thanks again to Brandon Bush for that hang. Check out Dark Water wherever you get music. Lots of cool songs and sounds going on in that project. Next week is going to be one of those kind of big deal weeks for us. Matthew Krauss will be talking with the hitman, the one and only Kenny Aronoff. We're generally about the lesser-known ground-level drummers on this podcast, but we always jump at the chance to talk with a bona fide heavyweight, and Kenny is no exception. So we're really looking forward to bringing that to you. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.